everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 223. On today's show, we talk about 12,000-year-old flutes, 700,000-year-old tools in Greece, and 6,000-year-old ovens in Washington. Let's dig a little deeper and find out what was cooking. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to The Archaeology Show. Oh my god, are you going to be whistling throughout this whole episode? That's going to be so annoying. <laughs> oh man. Yes. You've been waiting for an episode like this so you could show off your whistling skills, haven't you? I have indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and later on, I'm actually going to play something from YouTube and hopefully we don't get canceled by Apple for doing it. But it's going to be the whistling sounds that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Yeah, we're kind of burying the lead here. So yeah. the <laughs> There's a really cool article that came out in Smithsonian and it's called These 12,000 Year Old Flutes Mimic the Sound of Prehistoric Birds. Yeah. And it is so cool. And like you said, they actually have a guy who created a replica of one of these bone flutes and played it. It's yeah. it's so neat. So, yeah. It looks exactly when you when you look at the picture here, it looks exactly like you know, one of those duck calls or bird calls that you see it hanging does. around somebody's neck. And yeah, I mean, we'll get to that in a bit, but there's been some assumptions made about yes, these, which humans are humans. So assumptions are assumptions. But I feel like yeah. they did it in the right kind of way where they used a lot of could have and maybes yeah. and a possibility. You know, as long as you're using well, those words, I feel like you're you're doing okay. Right. Well, let's get to the meat of this thing first, and then we'll talk about yeah. our thoughts on it. So seven... 12,000-year-old, what they're calling just flutes, have been found in Israel. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's the thing, too. They found, like, a th over a 1,000 bird bones altogether. Yeah. And they noticed during their analysis phase, because they didn't see this in the field, yeah. that seven of these had, like, weird holes in them. Right. Yeah. So, 
They were made from, again, small bird bones, and bird bones are hollow. Yeah, so they one make of the, one natural of the reasons flutes. they can fly. Yeah, yeah, because they're not they're not as weighed down. Mm-hmm. But they're hollow, and the instruments they're calling them were likely used to imitate the calls of birds of prey. Yeah, and that kind of statement is where I get a little bit like. Eh. Are we sure about that? But yeah. that's okay. We can keep talking about it. Well, and I'm also like, would you call a duck call an instrument? I mean, yeah. it makes a sound and I guess you could play it, but so does That's a very good point. So does a five gallon bucket with a hammer. Yeah. Like that also makes a sound and it I does. have played one. I every single excavation I'm on, I have played the twelve ball- the five gallon bucket. Well, if you don't call a bird call an instrument, then what do you call it? You call a it a bird? tool, really. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. But it does, because it makes a sound. It's an they're instrument. They're calling it an instrument. But yeah. to me, instruments are used for making music, not for other functions. But it is a sound made specifically by a human for a specific purpose. So I think that could be considered an instrument. I don't know. There's, I'm not really sure what the actual definition is there. But. Yeah. So like you said, there was a collection of over 1,100 bird bones. And they were found during previous excavations at a site in Israel's Hula Valley. I kept reading that as Hulu Valley. Hulu. "Hmm, What's playing over there? (laughs) No. Yeah. And of course, you know, they notice these during analysis because when you pull things out of the field, they're often dirty. They might even have like crusted conglomerate type stuff on them. And and you don't really go too far into cleaning that stuff off in the field. So it sort of makes sense that they didn't really notice that there was modifications on these bones until they got back to the lab. Yeah, what they did actually notice was holes that weren't natural mm-hmm. and what looked like mouthpieces. And I think they don't mean like some sort of external thing added onto it, just like the end was carved in a way yeah, that like wasn't natural. Yeah. yeah, it didn't look like a break or yeah. something like that. It was actually, you know, something that you would you would look think look like a mouthpiece for like yeah, a flute or they, a really like a clarinet. Yeah, and when you look at the picture of the ones they reproduce, you know, they it does look like they shaped the end of it to, mm-hmm. you know, make it easier to blow into or yeah. or to make a better sound or whatever they're trying to do with it. Yeah, and then they they specifically say in there that this would allow them to function as musical instruments, which which isn't wrong. Yeah, the technical term for those is aerophones, apparently. Oh, okay, there yeah. we go. Yeah, and. They would be some of the oldest known instruments that imitate bird calls. And again, mm-hmm. the, the juxtaposition between instrument and tool yeah. here is really confusing to me. And I don't like that language. Well, it, but we also can't make the assumption that they were using these as bird calls. It could have been an instrument. Maybe they were making music and yeah. they just wanted the sounds of the music to them was the sounds of nature around them. So they were imitating bird calls from a musical standpoint. That's always possible, too. Yeah. It's not necessarily true that they were hunting hunting birds of prey. But, you know, they have found the bones of those birds of prey in the assemblages as well. So we know that they did eat them. Hunt them. Right. Yeah. So did this work? Were birds of prey that dumb? They were like attracted by this and then speared or something? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. So they didn't have bow and arrow. 12,000 years ago. Right. So they would have been speared or, mm-hmm. or snagged or hit somehow out of the air. Yeah. You know, God, imagine how scary that is. Anyway, because <laughs> those things are, I mean, they're sharp talons. Yeah. Yeah. Not, they're big. No joke. Right. The use wear on these show that they were indeed played. Mm-hmm. They have microscopic use wear. And I'm imagining they didn't really get into that in the Smithsonian article, but I imagine there's like wearing on the mouthpiece area and mm-hmm. possibly wearing in the finger area where the fingers would have been. Yeah, I'm thinking about like fingernails maybe tapping yeah. around the holes. Mm-hmm. And, and over time, that would create a wear pattern that yeah. was identifiable. That that makes total sense. They could see that. Yeah, when they tried these after they ma- they didn't try the originals, they made reproductions, as you said earlier. But when they tried them, it sounds like 
two different birds, the kestrel and the sparrowhawk, which are mm-hmm. two well-known birds of prey in that area. And ones that they were known for hunting that yeah. have been found on various sites. And yeah. so they definitely interacted with these species on a hunting level for sure. Right. The people we're talking about here are the Natufians, which we've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. They're a pretty well-known group of people that lived in the Levant region, which is what that area is basically called, from about 13,000 to 9,700 BCE. So, Man, I mean, so 13,000 was 15,000 years ago. I know, ago. that's insane. That yeah. is insane that they had preservation good enough yeah. that bones like this were preserved. Thank you, desert. And, yeah. and that they can see these whole holes on them that it's just so amazing when preservation works like that it's just like mind-blowing to me it's so cool you always see those like sci-fi movies that take place in some apocalyptic future Mm -hmm. and they always talk about the founders and the creators and the the people who basically rebooted society Mm -hmm. lots these guys yeah i mean they basically essentially according to this article they invented musical instruments (laughs) they invented agriculture yeah because they were some of the first in this area in in any area yeah they call this the they're in like the fertile crescent area right yeah yeah Yeah. they they call it the fertile crescent because they were the first people in this area to transition from a foraging to more of an agricultural lifestyle and mm-hmm. became more sedentary. Mm-hmm. They were some of the first to do that. Yeah, and that's why they had time to, you know, create flutes out of bird bones. Yeah. Which is why I'm also like, maybe they were just using them to make, you know, the sweet sounds yeah. of birds They're around like, the fire at night because they like the way birds sound, you know? like, wait, I have to gather? I could just go like... <laughs> Pick it up over there in those neat little rows of corn. Right. Not corn. Not corn. Those neat little rows over there. Yeah. I'm certain they went from just like hunting and gathering to actual fields. Yeah. Yeah. Like like a day or two. Maybe a season. Maybe a season. Uh, Thinking like they came up with the idea on a Friday. They're like, okay, it's the weekend. So we're not going to do anything then. Yeah. Let's do this on Monday. But starting Monday, like we're going to have nice, neatly planted rows of crops. And by the the end of the week, they had social security Uh and, you know, food stamps. So Uh anyway. Yep, These... that was total sarcasm and <laughs> fake news, BTW. Okay, go on. <laughs> Actually, there is a shirt that you can buy on the Archaeology Podcast Network website, the T Public site that we have. Uh huh. And it's our shop. If you go to arcpodnet.com forward slash shop, there's the word agriculture with a line crossing it out. And that line is actually an arrow or a spear. Uh-huh. And it came from a Life in Ruins episode where they were basically saying that agriculture was the ruin of humanity. <laughs> because, because yeah, it made it so we could sustain ourselves and get better uh-huh. and, and just like eat better. Uh-huh. Well, not necessarily even eat better, but yeah. eat more consistently, I should say. And the byproduct of that is, you know... Nine billion people later, we're destroying the planet. That's true, but you also like have a MacBook Pro that does all kinds of fantastic yeah. things for you. But and for like, we're putting this podcast together because of I understand agriculture. <laughs> but for like three million years, nobody needed that, and they were fine. Well, that's true. That's yeah. true. So yeah. you know, it's but only... isn't it great that we have it? Well, yeah. Just trying I mean, to be I optimistic. Hear I hear you. So <laughs> anyway, one of the cool things about this, especially finding something so personalized is that it helps researchers and archaeologists and historians understand the people of this time period just a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, I think, dreams of most archaeologists is, you know, just really understanding, not just writing stuff down in a piece of paper and saying, oh, these are the measurements and, and here's what it looks like. If you really stop and think about it, you're like, man, somebody, somebody like held this Mm -hmm. 12,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago. And they're standing on this plane going, man, I really hope this bird can come over here because I'm freaking starving. Yeah. You know, and I got to feed my family and, you know, just all those things. And it just helps you 
helps bring them into focus and into reality. Yeah, it, it makes them real people who did real things yeah. to help themselves and their family survive. And that I agree, like those moments on an archaeological excavation yeah. are always my favorite as well. Just finding another, you know, projectile point or mm-hmm. a pot shirt, like it just doesn't have that same like connection to the people that you're trying yeah. to research. So this these are these are so cool. Yeah, they said they were likely painted and mm. worn on a string around the neck. I'm not sure where they're getting that from. That could be wear patterns yeah. again. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, that if that's true, it shows sophistication and technical precision and intentionality, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The bones were actually from the Eurasian teal and the Eurasian coot, okay. two little birds uh-huh. that they got those from. So they're using these birds to play the sound of a different bird is what it sounds like. Like yeah. the, the bird bones that they're using yeah. were not the ones that the sound is making. No. Okay. Which, I don't know. I'm kind of good with that. That seems, <laughs> oh, a, little, yeah. that seems a little mean to use, the, <laughs> to bones use your, the bones of your cousins to lure you in. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that would be kind of mean. All right. Well, let's play the sound from YouTube. It's actually linked in the Smithsonian article mm-hmm. and I'm going to play it right now. So that was pretty cool. I really should be playing the sound of the birds as well, the kestrel and the sparrowhawk to see how close that is. Maybe it doesn't have to be that close, though. Maybe it just has to be something interesting that the birds would come over and and hear. But I always wonder when people play calls like that, is it like like there is a language? Mm -hmm. It's not a very sophisticated language, but Mm -hmm. there's meaning to the sounds. There's intentionality to the sounds. And it's been proven that the sounds that animals make they're different. Yeah. They're not just random sounds. Right. You know, you can you can hear the calls and their their friends will, you know, respond in different ways to different calls. Mm-hmm. Like you know what an alert call is, you know what a call to attention is, you know what a mating call is, you mm-hmm. know what those things are. So is blowing one of these flutes or even modern bird calls just like speaking in gibberish terms to a human? Like <laughs> you just like really don't know what you're saying, but they're and they're really only coming over because of they're like, like the say hell what is that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Natufians chose those small bones, though, because they sounded more like falcon sounds, sounds when blown into. And I, I don't, I mean, based on what is what I want to know. Yeah. Like, did you try other sizes of bones? And yeah. were there other examples of bones of different sizes that didn't sound like falcons? Yeah. And, and it's you know? a flute. So it, and it's got multiple holes on it, meaning you can make multiple sounds, too. Well, so kind of. I think the multiple holes were really to give that. Like that trill. That, yeah. That yeah. kind of in and out sound to yeah, it. Yeah. So okay. not really a trill, but you know. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't know music words. Yeah. I'm that was like not the right word. Tone deaf, basically. Yeah. So yeah. these all just sound the same to me. Tone deaf is different than not knowing music words. I know. I don't know any of yeah. it. I'm so. not musical at all. Anyway, this just shows that they they gained some knowledge of acoustics while they were making these because there were probably some that didn't quite sound as well. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, if I move the hole this way or if I if I add a hole here or if mm-hmm. I make it this big or, you know, if I use a different size of bone, I get a different tone. Yep. And they probably would have noticed. I mean, they weren't stupid. So they would have noticed that, hey, this one works a lot better at attracting, you know, hawks and falcons than, than yep. this one does. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, you got to imagine that they were learning and yeah. changing and, and editing basically right. based on what they learned. So. Yeah. And of course, at the very end here, they said, well, they were likely used for hunting and luring the birds in, but could have been used for other things as well. And can anyone guess what the $10 word is that they use? (laughs) 
ritual. ritual. <laughs> yep, ritual and spiritual use, of course. But come on, I totally see that. Like, if these birds are really important to your culture, yeah, then I could see some kind of ceremony where you have to play sounds. I mean, mm-hmm. sound is a big, important part of ceremonies. Yeah, We don't really know what the sounds of a ceremony from 15,000 years ago, we don't know what that sounds like, right? right. It's almost impossible to know. But having these little flutes... And thinking that maybe it was part of a ceremony, it just gives us that little bit more of an insight into what it might have been like. We're assuming, we're guessing, we don't know, but it's still a cool thing to kind of speculate about. So this was published in early June of 2023 in Nature's Scientific Reports. But the Smithsonian article, they actually talked to some of the researchers and Mm -hmm. they said that they're going to go back to the excavation site during the annual bird migration when these birds are coming over to test the flute out. Oh, that's amazing. And I'm like, you're going to attract like falcons to your face? (laughs) That doesn't sound like a great plan. I'm not sure they work that well. (laughs) I don't think the falcon is going to like land on your shoulder and try to like become buddies with you. So (laughs) yeah, well, all I can say is if the ancient Greeks had tried that, they might not be alive today to make the cool things they had, but they we're making tools 700,000 years ago, <laughs> as we know now. Back in a minute. <laughs> hey, archaeology podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 223. And now we're moving over to Greece to talk about an article that was really kind of just reported in AP News here because it was really a press release, yeah. not, a, not a scholarly article that was released. Yeah, definitely. That is something that we should just talk about really quick because yeah. press releases are great, but they are very preliminary. They don't usually have a lot of information. Yeah. And it's just a like... Hey, look at this cool, awesome thing that we did or found or whatever. So while they're fun and great, it's always nice to keep in the back of your mind. You should look for the like peer reviewed article that should follow and come out at some point to go along with it. So anyway, moving on. (laughs) Yeah. So what this is, is the article title is newly discovered stone tools drag dawn of Greek archaeology back by a quarter million years. And yeah, that's a yeah. big statement right there. <laughs> right. So there's been a coal mine that they've been digging in for a long time. And I don't know what the circumstances around this are because they didn't really announce that. But in this coal mine, way down deep, they found some of the country's oldest artifacts in a site that they're preliminarily dating to about 700,000 years ago. Now, that I that I can buy the, the rough dating of it because they're, you know, anytime geology is involved, like mm-hmm. they know how old this stuff is. They're looking for coal. Yeah. They've done that analysis. So yep. you can relatively date it by saying, well, the layer above it is mm-hmm. this old and the layer below it is this old. Yeah, that's right? how we do in paleoanthropology. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a valid way of dating for sure. Right. You're not going to get the exact year, but you'll definitely get a, a solid range. Yeah. This was one of five sites investigated in what they call the Megalopolis area during a five-year project with an international team of experts. I think that might be my new favorite word. Megalopolis. Megalopolis. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I know. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Anyway, there's some other cool stuff that have been found in the Megalopolis. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, But what they found were 
rough, very rough. Take a look at the pictures in the article here. Very rough stone tools from what they call the Lower Paleolithic Period. And that specifically dates from about 3.3 million years to about 300,000 years ago. So it's a pretty big time span for the Lower Paleolithic. Right. Yeah. And these tools, they are very rough. Very rough. Like, can we say for sure that like, how are they deciding that they're tools? What what makes them say that, well, yes, this is this is intentionally made by human ancestors to do right. a thing? So, I don't know, because this isn't a scholarly it, article. Yeah, exactly. We right. don't have the so data yet. They're, they're looking at these and using their archaeological intuition and saying, these look like tools. Yeah. You know, they were found eh, somewhat in association with the remains of extinct species of giant deer, which we'll get to in a minute, mm-hmm. elephants, hippopotamus, rhinoceros, and the macaque monkey. Now, they didn't say whether or not those remains showed evidence of, you know, chopping or right. scraping mm-hmm. or yeah. cutting or something like that. But if they did, that would be kind of, you know, yeah. a smoking gun right that there. That definitely would. Yeah. yeah. But I had to take a little detour right here. Giant deer? That sounds terrifying and amazing. <laughs> so what the heck is that? The giant deer, that's the like the common name of it. Its actual Latin name is Megaloceros giganteus, which nice. is also amazing. But it's also called the Irish elk because it was first found in Ireland mm-hmm. um, or discovered in Ireland. And so they called it the Irish elk. It's the largest deer that ever lived. And the distance between the far points <laughs> of some of the recovered antlers, not necessarily here in Greece, but in general, is up to 14 feet. That's so insane. That's wider than our RV with the slides out. Yeah. Like that is yeah. That is just, I can't even fathom. It's nuts. Antlers that big. That's so crazy. I mean, seeing something like that come through the forest would be terrifying and hilarious at the same time because it would undoubtedly be caught on trees. <laughs> yeah, right. Like this thing couldn't even have gone through a forest. Yeah, no way. That actually is a very good point. I wonder yeah. if it lived in areas where the trees were more spread out or something like that. It's the only way that would work, right? Yeah. Crazy. This project was directed by... I'm going to get all these names wrong, guys. Sorry about this. But Panagoitis Karkanas of the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, Eleni Panagopalau from the Greek Ministry, and Katerina Harvati, professor of paleoanthropology at the University of Tübingen in Germany. Now, I actually emailed Panagoitis Karkanas because we're going to be in Greece Mm -hmm. and we're going to be in Athens in October. So I was like, hey, any chance we could maybe talk about this and possibly (laughs) even see the artifacts? Yeah, that would be really cool. He emailed back yesterday and said that unfortunately the artifacts have already been turned over to the Ministry of Culture and they don't have access to them anymore. Oh, wow. Not not easy access to them and that they're not going to be in the study area in October. Uh, They're all going to be elsewhere. So, Well, that's too bad. We might hit them up again just to say hi and see if they want to talk but either way that was pretty cool that he emailed back right away it was a little hard to find his email address but i nailed it i tracked it down so anyway the tools like i said are very simple tools they're more like sharp flakes and they belong to a a well-known lower paleolithic stone tool industry so lots of these have been found which is another reason why they probably are confident that they're actually tools yeah but i saw an article just the other day where some researchers have witnessed macaque monkeys specifically and some others just like using rocks to bash seeds and things and nuts to, to open mm-hmm. them up and, and other things. And they inadvertently make flakes. Yeah. Because right? anytime you bang two rocks together, if a piece comes off, it's going to have a, very strong flake characteristics. Yeah. It, it, that's yeah. what we do when we do it intentionally. And they're just doing it by accident. Right. Which it like, it's like, do you call that a tool? Like, well, how do you define that? Right. You would only really call that a tool if they're doing one of two things. If they're either a going for a shape of that rock that they're taking the flakes off of mm-hmm. and they're using that 
they have a vision in their mind of what they want it to look like, or B, they're using the flakes as a tool. Right. The flakes that come off yeah. to do something else. That would be intentional too. Like if they purposely bang that rock to get the flake and then use that for something, yeah. that's a tool. So I don't know. They say it calls into question some of our earliest ancestors mm -hmm. literally talking about these people and saying, well, were they kind of doing the same thing? Yeah. Or were they intentionally making flakes? Well, I would say you could look at the quantity, right? Like, if this is happening by accident, you're not going to get a huge pile of them all in the same place, probably, well, right? I mean, if you've gathered a whole bunch of nuts together and all you do is eat all day. Yeah. You know, maybe you will. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think it really does depend on the assemblage and the surrounding artifacts with yeah. it, for sure. Just knowing what kind of hominin ancestors were available in this area, they say it's possible that the items were produced by Homo antecessor, which is one of the, I, I would say, lesser known lines of Homo. Mm -hmm. And that dates back to that period in other parts of mm -hmm. Europe, too. So that's why they say that. Yep. Homo antecessor, just as a side note, is thought to be the last common ancestor of modern humans and their extinct Neanderthal cousins. Mm -hmm. So you take Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and... You come up to Homo antecessor. Yeah, trace it back to yeah. to this guy, basically. Yeah, yeah, which the name is a little bit on the nose. So, but you know, antecessor. <laughs> anyway, they diverged about eight hundred thousand years ago. Which, if this site is really seven hundred thousand years, I mean, hundred thousand years is a long period of time. But evolutionarily speaking, it's not that long. No, like that's so, getting close yeah. to that that divergent point. Yeah, they won't be sure who this is until more hominin fossil remains are recovered. Because mm -hmm. I get the impression they didn't find any there. Yeah, but maybe they're hoping to. Yep. So. Either way, they say that this is the oldest currently known hominin presence in Greece, and it pushes back the archaeological record in the country by up to 250,000 years. So apparently, <laughs> I mean, 500,000 years, give or take, was the oldest stuff they found that they can say is, is part of the human evolutionary line, whether mm -hmm. it's artifacts or remains that have ever been found in Greece. And this pushes that back another quarter million yeah, years. That's so, really, that's yeah, that's really pretty great. neat. So. I mean, it makes sense because, like, we have older representatives around yeah. that area. So you can yeah. only assume they were probably there as well. It's just that they didn't have the physical evidence of it. Yeah. The tools were likely used for butchering animals and processing wood or other plant matter, which again seems like a bit of an assumption, but we're talking about a press yeah. release here. So you're well, just kind of like making, making guesses at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. And they need to do further analysis, obviously, so that they can further nail down that that 700,000 year date and make sure that that's accurate and yeah. maybe refine it. Yeah, this site is also important because the tools they found and the remains of the animals were found in association. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, they found all that stuff. They found all the tools, but it doesn't specifically say whether or not the animal remains were affected by the tools. Yeah, which yeah. needs a, probably a lot of analysis to, to yeah, well, say whether or not that happened. And, and maybe they were. It just wasn't covered in this press release. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they already know that. Yeah, they so. might not have been ready to release that information yeah. publicly yet. So Yeah, for sure. So the site... Again, a little bit of a side detour here. In the Megalopolis Plain, has been mined for coal for decades to supply a local power plant. During the Paleolithic, though, it contained a shallow lake. Mm. So it would have been a good place to come and find, you know, maybe fish. I don't know if it was yeah. too shallow with that. But definitely other animals, animals that drinking were water. Yeah, yeah. Just drinking and, and eating along the lake there. Yep. And some of Greece's oldest myths of long-vanished race of giants that fought <laughs> the gods of Olympus come from this area when huge prehistoric oh, bones were dug up there in ancient times. Oh, totally. Yeah, so yeah. they would have found you know the the giant, the giant deer elk. the elephant you know <laughs> yeah. stuff like that and thought well these must be fantastical crazy creatures yeah totally and some of them were found right in this area yeah that's cool yeah so 
Anyway, if they did find a way to process this stuff, they probably would have wanted to bake some of it with some, you know, like a nice little shepherd's pie or something like that. And they could have learned how to do that from the people in Washington State at the Kalispell Indian Tribe. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 223. And for this one, we're going to go to somewhat of a CRM project, but more of a field school. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of both. Yeah. So... The Kalispell Indian tribe, which is up in very far northeastern Washington state. I mean, yeah. like up near Canada. Yeah, I was say, doesn't it cross the border into Oh, I'm Canada? sure the Kalispell like range did. Yeah there's, yeah, there's representatives on both sides. Yeah, well, with the reservation, though, it's really just over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the but official. Like the official. Yeah. Yeah. They were all over the place up there. Mm-hmm. But they actually bought some land and they not on their reservation, but they bought some land that they were needed to put up more housing for because mm-hmm. their tribe is growing, it's I growing. guess, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So they needed to obviously do a cultural resources excavation. That's where the CRM part comes in. Mm-hmm. And they often haven't actually shared any information or, or brought in outside people because they hire their own archaeologists. Mm-hmm. They, they not hire, they train and, and employ their own archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And which is a great thing. So they can put out as much information as they want. Mm-hmm. But they chose for this time to actually bring in Washington State University because the scope of this was just a little too it big too for much. what they could handle. Yeah. Which is a good thing for them to do because, you know, you just, I mean, anytime you can admit that, that means you're going to do good by the archaeology and yeah. bring in, you know, other people. So, yeah, it's really great that they're yeah. putting that much time and effort and money and everything right. into it. Yeah. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But mm-hmm. right now what they found are ovens. I mean, actual like earthen ovens mm-hmm. dating back about 6,000 years. And they were found on the banks of the Pend Oriel River. And again, up in northeastern Washington state. So very neat. Yeah. So members of the tribe and archaeologist Shannon Tushingham, and I'm only mentioning her because one of the best sources of information I found was actually from Washington State University. Mm-hmm. So it was printed from their point of view, mm-hmm. not the Kalispell tribe's point of view. Right. So I don't really have names of those people that helped. I wish I did. Yeah. But either way, archaeologist Shannon Tushingham of Washington State University was on this project and helping run the field school there. And they found firecracked rocks, which is basically rock that has been in immense heat, mm-hmm. usually in a fire yep. or an oven and like this. it's actually cracked, usually, yeah. which is why yeah. it's fire cracked. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Found it in clusters about four feet below the ground surface when doing this project. Mm-hmm. So, they say this is some of the oldest technology used by humans to cook food anywhere in the world. Yeah. And this is some of the oldest ovens in North America. Yeah. But to just sort of like make sure you've got the right idea about what this looked like, it's an oven but it's an oven because it heats things up and cooks it. It it's not like what you're what you're envisioning, like a yeah, an a f- not like bricks. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's none of that. It's not that sophisticated at yeah. all. It's just like rocks that got very hot and they were able to cook things in there. You know, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't plan this because I actually edited the next episode of the Life and Ruins podcast after I'd already taken notes on this article. Mm -hmm. But the episode coming out the day after this one comes out, I believe it's episode 163, they have somebody on there who 
studied for their master's thesis earthen ovens oh, and cool. hearths. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got like a lot of knowledge of this. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty cool episode listening to him talk about those and how mm-hmm. they make them. But they were able to carbon 14 date some of this, obviously, because you've got actual carbon remains mm-hmm. and, and, you know, organic remains inside these ovens, which can be easily dated. Mm-hmm. And it returned again between 6,000. And here's the crazy part. 700 years ago. Oh, that is a long span yeah. of time. So this yeah. speaks to the archaeologists, to both the ecological and cultural stability in the area. They were coming back here time and time and time again for thousands of years. So it wasn't just 6,000 and then 700. It was like Continuous. it was continual between those yeah. two dates. That is very unusual, I think. Yeah. You don't usually see such a continued use of an area. One of the reasons the tribe decided to share this excavation with the public, because even though they involved WSU, they often, again, don't share this information. They're just like, hey, you know what? This is ours. Mm -hmm. This is our history. We're Mm -hmm. good. But they wanted to share this one because they think it's important for non-natives to learn and understand more about their tribe in this way. And, And I think really... You know, a lot of people don't believe them when they say we've been here for thousands mm-hmm. of years. Yeah. But this is pretty clear evidence that continuous occupation has taken place yeah. in this one area. And, you know, in a lot of areas, tribes often claim ancestral, I guess, relationship to the land for mm-hmm. thousands of years. And some tribes don't. Some tribes know that they moved in at a certain time. Yeah. Right. But others, they will say whether there's evidence for it or not. Hey, we've been here since the beginning of time because mm-hmm. their creation myths say that. Yeah. But this is actually true. Yeah. <laughs> like they've definitely been here for 6,000 years because why would people have moved in and out and said, oh, there's an oven I'm going to use? Yeah. It's more than likely the same people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They, they had oral histories that told them to come back to this place for yeah. whatever reason. Like that, that doesn't happen by accident for sure. Right. It makes me think of Devil's Tower. I was just reading an article mm. about how I think for the month of June or maybe it's July as well, there's like a, a volunteer, not ban on climbing, but everybody climbers volunteer to not climb devil's tower mm. during that time period because the tribes in the area oh, yeah. that it's just an important time for them. And they just ask that there not be any climbers on there. And yeah. I know there's a lot of pushback from some people for that kind of thing, because they're just like, why, why do you get to own this area? Why do you get to make these kind of rules about it? But they when were there you first, they were there first. And then you see evidence like this and it's like, yeah. yeah, not only were they here first, but like it could have been for thousands of years. And if they keep going back to the same places, you just see how significant they were to the, the ancestors of those people. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of those connections might have been broken when the Europeans came in and sort of broke up all of the native tribes. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be respecting right. what we clearly have evidence for going back thousands of years. So anyway, yeah. this is just another another proof of that, I guess. It's really neat. Yeah. One of the names I do have that mentioned that quote earlier about sharing this information outside the tribe was actually Kalispell tribal leader Shirley Black Bear. So mm-hmm. I wanted to mention her. Yeah. There's also a tribal archaeologist named Kevin Lyons who was involved in this. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was talking about a lot of the stuff that they found in the article that's linked in the show notes. Yeah. The excavation is actually currently ongoing. They're doing it right now, mm-hmm. apparently. Mm-hmm. This is a press release. Oh, dated it's another press release. Okay. June 19th. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's pretty cool. So they're actually in the field as we speak, mm-hmm. from what I understand. 
And they've under, uncovered remnants of actually several ovens, not just one. And one of the things they're trying to do, in fact, if you look at a picture, it looks like this woman is hunched over a mound of dirt and she's brushing it with a brush. And you're thinking, why the hell is she doing that? <laughs> because she's trying to brush away the dirt around the oven. Yeah. The oven is actually, you know, was underground, of course. And they dug down. They probably hit it with a shovel or they came down on it with trowels mm-hmm. and noticed some dark staining more than, more than likely. That's usually indicative of a hearth or an oven. Burning. And she said yeah. the fire cracked rock too they could have found that first Mm -hmm. because an oven would have been something you know like a hearth is usually a lens shape Mm -hmm. in the ground but an oven would be two lens shapes one on top of the other because they would not only make like a hearth type feature but then they would cover that with rocks and Mm -hmm. you know if they had i don't know what kind of vegetation they had up there but if they had like really thick big leaves they could have covered it with Mm -hmm. that as well because the whole point of an oven is not just to cook what is to cook but they cook it by sealing in the moisture and the heat yeah. and then cooking low and slow. I mean, yeah. they were the original barbecue artists, right? Right, totally. Yeah, so that's what <laughs> ovens are for. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what they were cooking in there, but they're going to find out. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, they'll um, be doing a lot more analysis yeah. on this for sure. But one of the things they're able to tell with these, since they were used for so long a period of time and continuously, not like they left for a hundred years and came back and made another oven. Like mm-hmm. the actual ovens themselves were used for very long periods of time. Yeah. These particular ones. Yeah. And one of the things they're trying to do with their excavation is see if they can find little defining lines to see how they changed in shape and size over time. Mm-hmm. So, and I imagine if they're keeping the soil from these different changes yeah. separated too, that they're going to be able to pull out the different charred seeds, nuts, bits of protein, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be able to see changes over time of, what the people were eating, what they were burning. And that'll be another really great source of information. And a thing that we haven't really had before. Yeah. Like that's, that's a, that's hard to get that kind of data. And so again, preservation is, it's so, when it's good, it is so good. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And one of their big questions is why here and why for so long? Like why not somewhere else and, mm-hmm. and why not why not move around? Yeah. You know, it just again speaks a lot to the stability of the area and the fact that the the river and the area was just always providing and mm-hmm. why go somewhere else if you've got a constant source yeah, of food? If you know it's good and you, you know? already have an established situation that you know is gonna work, why yeah. why change, right? And I don't know what the weather is like over there, but I do know that, you know, you're getting close to the well, you're getting close to the mountains in Idaho mm-hmm. and Montana, the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And you are, you know, Eastern Washington gets a lot of snow. It does. And I don't know what it was like 6,000 years ago or four, five, 3,000 years ago, whatever it was. I don't know what it was like back then, but, you know, I'm wondering if they would have lived there in the winter and had these ovens at that time as well in this particular area because mm-hmm. they had to live somewhere. They couldn't just go 2,000 miles away. Yeah. You know, yeah, they, they had to winter somewhere. <laughs> right. They call it the seasonal round when when groups go from one place to the next, either following game migrations or mm-hmm. going where the food is or kind of staying out of the bad weather. Mm-hmm. I mean, but in some cases, you just adapt to it. Yeah. You know, you, you wear thicker clothing, which they could easily make. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just, you just deal with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you might not be going up in the mountains in the middle of winter. You stay down in the valleys where it's maybe a little less snow, a little warmer, but you know, you can't yeah. go that far away. No. If that's your, your home, your, your lands, you're not going to go that far away from it. Yeah, for sure. So data from this excavation and other archaeological investigations, as well as environmental reconstruction. So they've got a lot of people doing, you know, cores and things like that. And there's other people, not necessarily for this project, but Mm -hmm. just in general, the data has been gathered. They take all that, including ethnographical data and ethnographical just means historical accounts. Mm -hmm. You know, people that have come in, whether it's tribal members or other, you know, usually missionaries or explorers, Mm -hmm. you know, white Europeans Mm -hmm. that have diary accounts of what they, what they saw. Those are some of the best, like 
I don't know, unbiased. Well, not unbiased, I shouldn't say, but third party observations. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't tell how good they were at observing and what they actually wrote down. And what their own biases were that they were applying to the things that they're observing. Well, that's why I said it wasn't unbiased. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely biased, but it's looked at differently than, say, the people who have an oral history that are Mm -hmm. relating this down because that changes as well. Yeah. Right. So anyway. They use all those data to provide a clearer picture of lives of people in those times, which I'll tell you what, I literally just said that 20 Mm. minutes ago Yeah, because that is what they're trying to do in every single one of these circumstances is say, what was it like back then? Yeah. You know, and and all the articles, that's what we're talking about. We're just trying to understand what they did, why they did it, where they did it, how they did it. You know, it's just about filling in that, that picture and that story. Indeed. One cool thing about that collaboration with WSU is they've been doing this for about a hundred years. Really? Um, Almost a hundred years. You read the article. There's, there's talk of a archeologist, not in the archeology span magazine article, but the one that's actually from WSU insider. And Mm -hmm. we link to that, but they mention an association with an archeologist back in 1938 Alan Smith, and he was a former academic vice president at WSU, but they talk about working with him to do different things on the reservation and, you know, help him out with some stuff. So anyway, it's a cool, long history that they've got. It's nice to see a good relationship between Native tribes and an academic institution because they aren't always good relationships. Yeah. So it's really, really great to see that and that they're working together still today to learn more information, to, yeah. but to do it in a way that's respectful and the tribes, you know, approve of it and are okay with it. So that yep. if only that kind of relationship could be built around the country <laughs> with all of the different areas. But. Well, and it's got a, another benefit too. Cause like I said, this is actually being run as an archeological field school. So it's helping train the next generation mm. of archeologists mm-hmm. in not only, excavation techniques but you know this is essentially a crm project too yeah the biggest difference between a crm excavation and an academic excavation is usually time yeah you have a lot less time for a crm one just because there's usually some sort of you know construction some sort of heavy you're equipment holding up right some kind you. of construction yeah. yeah yeah and i was a little bit wrong in saying that this was an ongoing one now that i'm taking a closer look at one of the pictures because there's a banner across a barbed wire fence that says archaeological field school May 22nd to June 16th, which it is not June 16th. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's they over. finished last week. Yeah. That's we're recording this. Yeah. That's probably why they put the press release out because they're ready yeah. to start talking about the things yeah. that they found. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and you know, this also just, I, I just got to mention this because I've heard people say these kinds of things, especially I've heard archaeologists say this in that. You know, you hear two different things. You hear one that, you know, we're always just plowing through Native American stuff and we don't ask them or consort with them. We're just like, hey, we're going to plow over this and put up whatever we want because, you know, we can. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you also hear from the Native American side. Well, we never, you know, get a chance to say anything and we never, you know, we want to preserve everything and not ever touch it and then just not do anything with it. Both of those two things are being proved wrong in this. Mm -hmm. The Kalispell Indian tribe bought this land. They're doing the cultural survey. They're digging everything up and taking it with them, Mm -hmm. putting it in their lab and analyzing it because it's not going back in the ground. Now, they may repatriate this stuff to the ground at some point, mm-hmm. but not yet. They're right. taking it out. Right. And then they're going to put up houses or yeah. apartments or whatever they're doing. Yeah. So this is not only a collaborative CRM effort, but it's a tribal effort to do exactly what CRM does. Now, yeah. I'm not saying it always works that way across the country. There's a lot of bad examples, yes. but this is a good example of how it really should be done. Yeah. And how it can yeah. work together when everybody makes a, an agreement and comes yeah. together and, and does it. So Exactly. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that's about it. Please take a look down at your show notes. You heard some ads during this show. It really helps us out if you go check some of those out and click on them. That Motley Fool one seems actually really cool. It's uh, (laughs) their whole stock advisor thing. Like, If you're interested in playing the stock market at all, it's helpful to go in with some information. And they do a lot of research and they say, hey, you know, this is a good one to bid on, you know, right now. Mm -hmm. And especially in today's market where... I mean, it's up, down, up, down. You never mm-hmm. know what's going on. Right. So I'm not a stock advisor, but I will say the two best performing stocks I have right now are Tesla and Apple. <laughs> they just keep going up. Yeah. So anyway, with that, we will head out and we will see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.